On February 3rd of this year, a train derailed near East Palestine, Ohio, a small town near the Pennsylvania border. Some of the cars that derailed were carrying hazardous materials, including vinyl chloride, a cancer-causing substance. Vinyl chloride is transported as a compressed liquid, which becomes a colorless gas at room temperature. Inhalation of this gas can cause respiratory problems and neurological symptoms like headaches and dizziness, and long-term exposure can cause liver damage and cancer. Other chemicals that can harm people were also spilled in this derailment. In order to prevent a catastrophic explosion, officials evacuated the residents of East Palestine and intentionally burned off chemicals in a controlled explosion that sent giant plumes of black smoke into the air. Five days later, the, evacu the evacuation order was lifted and residents were allowed to return home after officials determined the air quality was safe and water was safe to drink. However, many residents justifiably felt unsafe returning home soon after this disaster, and many Americans, such as myself, have been left wondering how exactly health officials determine that an area is safe again after a major disaster such as this. So today we're going to speak to an expert to understand how the combination of epidemiologic, toxicological, and other methods are used to determine the risk to human health from chemicals deposited into the soil, water, air, or food of communities after a major disaster, such as a train derailment, factory explosion, oil spills, and the like. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. I'm joined by our co-host, Ghassan Hamra, Assistant Professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, for now. How's it going, Ghassan? Good. Yourself? I'm doing good. good. Uh, all right. So we're joined today by Keeve Nachman, the Robert S. Lawrence Associate Professor and Associate Chair of Environmental Health and Engineering at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Keeve is also Associate Director of the Hopkins Center for a Livable Future and the Co-Director of the Risk Sciences and Public Policy Institute, and both Ghassan and I know uh, Kiev from our, our times at Hopkins, whether they be now or in the past when we were training there. Uh, so, hey, Kiev, how are you doing? I'm great, Brian. It's really nice to see you and Ghassan. Awesome. We're so happy to have you. So, let's start with some basics. When a disaster strikes, like the East Palestine train derailment, how do you assess the risk? You know, what data and tools do you use to make a determination of the immediate safety to the residents? Yeah, it's a great question. So we have a framework for making sense of, of situations like chemical exposures in the context of a disaster. Um, we call it the risk paradigm, and I know no one wants to hear about paradigms, but <laughs> it's a really nice way to take a public health problem and break it into pieces and, and fill those pieces in in a way that'll allow us to draw conclusions about potential risks. Hmm. So I can kind of just walk you through what the components sure. of that are, because it'll help put things in context. Hmm. Um, so there are four core steps of the paradigm. The first is something we call hazard identification, where we look at the literature. So we look at studies of chemical exposures in animals, toxicological studies. We might look at epidemiological studies, as you are well familiar, studies mm -hmm. of chemical exposures in humans. Mm -hmm. And we try and establish an evidentiary basis for a relationship between a person being exposed to the chemical hazard and developing some sort of adverse health outcome like a disease or illness. Mm -hmm. uh, once we've said, yes, we believe there's a real relationship between that exposure and getting sick, mm -hmm. we then move on to try and figure out, well, how much of the chemical hazard do we need to be exposed to before we would anticipate some sort of negative health outcome. Mm -hmm. And we call that part dose response assessment. Mm -hmm. So once we have those two pieces nailed down, we have a good feel for uh, what the chemical can do given an exposure. And we need to think about who's exposed to the chemical. Uh, are we talking about adults? Are we talking about children, the elderly? Are we talking about people who have some unique vulnerability? Mm -hmm. uh, and what we wanna do is characterize the extent to which those people have contact with a chemical. Mm -hmm. And we call that exposure assessment, as you might imagine. And then once we have all those pieces of the puzzle together, we can tie them together in a step we call risk characterization, where I can attempt to put a number 
on the risk. So I could try and figure the probability that a person who's exposed to a chemical that's a carcinogen would develop cancer, given the exposure scenario we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Or I could say, uh, based on our understanding of the scenario, it is either likely or unlikely that a person might develop some non-cancer health outcome. Mm -hmm. So it's a fairly simple framework. The nitty gritty of each of the steps is a lot more complicated than I described it, but it's a nice way to kind of digest what we learn about a disaster um, and the population that's experiencing the disaster in different ways and try and put a number on it. Um, one kind of augmentation we've put on this process uh, in the last couple of years is the addition of a formal problem formulation step where we kind of take a step back before we dive in and start answering all those questions I just described and, and try and figure out, okay, who is the population we're concerned with? What are their unique vulnerabilities or sensitivities? What types of health outcomes would we assume could be possible given all the chemicals that we're dealing with in the scenario? And most importantly, what are the different ways that we could intervene on the situation to protect public health? And with that in mind, we can kind of calibrate our analysis uh, to really answer the most question, the the most important questions that will let us like, be most efficient in public health protections, or or call for the types of data that we need to feel more confident um, with regard to that intervention. Got it. So you know, <clears throat> these determinations for risk have to happen pretty quickly in a lot yeah. of ways, and a lot a lot quicker than epidemiology epidemiology's <laughs> kind of uh, timeline generally. So how does yeah. in risk assessment? Uh, how does it happen quickly in the context of uh, disasters to come up with the determination of whether a situation is safe or not? Yeah, it's a great question, Kassan. I feel like I'm going to tell you all your questions are great. <laughs> well, yeah. well, so I we're here for them, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, high respect for you. Um, okay, so in a disaster scenario, uh, we have to think about both the long-term risks of exposure that may occur to something that kind of stays behind in the soil, in the water, or, or even in the air. Mm -hmm. um, but we are um, also concerned about these short-term acute exposures mm -hmm. to chemicals right. that um, you wouldn't normally experience in your day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. um, and we kind of start there, um, trying to develop high-quality measurements of chemicals in the environmental media that people are going to have contact with. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have to think about who those people are that are likely to have the most contact. So in the East Palestine example, I'd be thinking about people who were there uh, on the scene immediately after the derailment, who were participating in the, the incineration of some of the chemicals, um, who were, were in fairly high concentrations of vinyl chloride and all the degradation products mm -hmm. uh, and had these really elevated short-term exposures. And we'd mm -hmm. want to get a sense for the extent to which they had inhalation of vinyl chloride. And we want to compare that to information we have about acute outcomes that might arise from those exposures. Um, the good thing about those acute exposures is under most circumstances, uh, they don't last for very long. So once we can feel somewhat confident that we have gotten people out of harm's way and mitigated any uh, mm -hmm. health outcomes that may arise in the short term, mm -hmm. um, a lot of which are going to be reversible, thankfully, mm -hmm. um, then we can start thinking about the residual contamination in environmental media um, mm -hmm. in the area, uh, characterizing it, figuring out how long it's going to be present. And then we can start to ask questions about what is the nature of people's interaction with contaminated soils, contaminated water, contaminated air, mm -hmm. and how will that interaction change over time? And that will allow us to estimate the likelihood that someone's going to get sick. That's a lot trickier to do yeah. because a lot of things can change. Mm -hmm. um, some chemicals can be very persistent in environmental mm -hmm. media like soil and other chemicals can volatilize. They can degrade into other chemicals that could be more or less toxic. Mm or they could move. And right. so um, what we do in risk assessment is we have to make judgment calls about what we think, these how these various parameters are gonna change mm -hmm. uh, and then make recommendations. But oftentimes as you likely do in epidemiology, yeah. we'll model kind of different scenarios and do sensitivity analyses to try mm -hmm. and figure out, you know, under the worst case scenario, we think this is the likely outcome, but under kind of the most confident estimation, we think this is probably how things will be. And then right. risk assessment is not the end of the story. Um, risk assessors provide some sort of analysis or recommendations that go to a risk manager 
who's often a different person. And that person has an even tougher job because that person says, okay, based on what you've done, I have a feel for what the likely risks may be to people who are involved or exposed as a result of the scenario we're talking about. But I've got to think about people's values. I've got to think about the costs, the technological feasibility mm -hmm. of whatever management strategy we pursue to keep people out of harm's way. Right. That's the tricky thing is that's not a purely scientific endeavor. In right. many cases, the science, unfortunately, is a relatively small uh, actor in those decisions and, and other things can really have a strong influence. It's gotcha. Get hairy. Yeah. And you have to make a judgment call at some point, which actually leads me to my next question. So in addition to wanting an answer fast, which is a unique thing to risk assessment, um, I would imagine the media and the general public and the residents especially want answers to questions about safety in absolute terms, right? You know, is this safe or isn't it? Yeah, and and you know, I remember seeing reports that uh, the EPA was saying, you know, you can return home, the water's safe. There's very small levels of contamination in the water, and I could imagine that if it was my family, I'd say, what do you mean, very small levels? Like, uh, what are we talking here? Like, how am I supposed to believe you that that's okay? So, you know, obviously the truth is likely a little bit more complicated than than safe or not safe. So, how do you communicate the nuances of risk to the public when they're searching for a yes or no answer? Yeah. So can I put a pin in communication? We'll come back to that. And yeah, we'll yeah. Unpack yeah. safe and what sure. goes into making a judgment. Yes, so that's, that's perfect. Yes. When I teach risk assessment um, to my students, mm -hmm. uh, I, I kind of feel like safety is a safe is a bad word. Um, <laughs> safe is not an objective scientific judgment. It's subjective. Yeah. Indeed. It's right. Safe is entirely subjective. Uh, yeah. Well, not entirely. Safe not is entirely. a function of, of the risk and people's interpretation of that risk. Mm -hmm. And we all interpret the same risks in very different ways. It's mm -hmm. part of human nature. And so I may look at a risk and make a conclusion that I'm tolerant of that risk, and you may be intolerant of the same risk, and, and we may behave very differently as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to you know me making a judgment about whether I would go home after a disaster had caused some sort of contamination event where I live, mm -hmm. um, I could you know, have a very different set of decision criteria than anyone else. And health risk would be one piece of that. There'd mm -hmm. also be, you know, can I afford to rent a hotel for a month? Mm -hmm. um, right. Oh. Is it compatible with my life? Do I have a, a setup for, you know, we all have kids for mm -hmm. child care, for every other aspect of my life beyond just how I, my, my level of comfort with the chemical exposure. So mm -hmm. I, I, I know that every time I talk to a reporter, they really want an answer to that question. <laughs> sure. and I feel like as a risk scientist or a public health scientist, it's not really fair for me to make a judgment for someone else, um, even though at the end of the day, that is definitely what reporters want. Mm -hmm. There are even further complications. And, and again, this is kind of a, inherent in every scientific discipline in public health, but uncertainty. So mm -hmm. I talked to you through early on in the podcast, kind of the steps of what goes into a risk assessment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the way I did it would suggest that we have great science underpinning each piece of that. Mm -hmm. And in reality, um, the approach to risk assessment was designed with full recognition that we may have and, and almost always have sometimes significant gaps in knowledge mm -hmm. uh, about the various components. So going all the way back to hazard, uh, we may not have a lot of research. So, you know, one example, we may only have animal studies about the relationship between exposure to a chemical and the outcome. And there may be uncertainty in saying, well, can we trust that humans would respond to the chemical in the same way and right. to the same magnitude that animals would? Um, mm -hmm. So that would be one. We may not have a really terrific understanding of the presence and movement and potential changes in the chemical contaminants that are in the environment. Mm -hmm. we, not, we may not have measured the right chemicals. We may not have instruments for measurement that are adequately sensitive to fully rule out that there's a risk that we might be uh, not okay with. Mm -hmm. um, we may not have a great understanding of how people will spend time in relation to the contaminated media. 
um, mm -hmm. because you know we have uh, data that we use in risk assessment that are calibrated to kind of the general U.S. population. Right. And sometimes we say like, okay, at the 95th percentile, we know that people who really love to get dirty in soil <laughs> do it this much. Mm -hmm. But even using those population distributions, there's still a lot of uncertainty in the true nature of people's contact. Right. So what I do as a risk assessor or what someone who's responding to a disaster would do is they do their best guess, right? Yeah, and that maybe yeah. that is what we call the central tendency estimate. And then we say, all right, for a person that goes outside, gets naked, rolls around in soil for hours, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it would look like this. And, and we know that's probably unlikely, probably really extreme. Mm -hmm. But for someone who's going to make a decision about how to intervene, it's probably useful to know, mm -hmm. okay, reality is somewhere in the mix mm -hmm. and it's a matter of you know trying to protect people and and ideally prioritize risk minimization over some of the other considerations that are also present gotcha right so so you mentioned scenarios in which you might only have information from like an animal model so then mike that makes me think to myself what's the hierarchy of information for risk assessment yeah. Oh, that's a really good question, Gassan. See, I told you. Now I know. <laughs> and that I one was Gassan's question. I actually came up with that one, so you're welcome. Yeah. So uh, we prefer human data um, because we are humans and we eliminate the need to extrapolate from animal models. But as an epidemiologist, I'm sure you're well aware that there are lots of reasons why there could be confounding factors, issues with exposure and outcome measurement, all sorts of other issues that may compromise the quality of an epidemiologic study mm -hmm. that make it hard to feel great about, you know, like a poor to adequate epidemiologic study versus a well-conducted study in an animal. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the field is moving in the direction of a more systematic and holistic consideration of the evidence before making a decision, A, what our kind of strongest evidence is for establishing that a hazard exists, and then B, doing that dose response modeling to kind of make judgments about where we need to keep exposures below. Mm -hmm. um, so the way things were done when I started out in the field was uh, typically for doing some sort of dose response modeling, we'd look for what we thought was the best data set for dose response information and we wouldn't pay quite as much attention to the quality or the totality of the evidence base across animals and humans and mechanistic information and we we did the best we could but in the advent of kind of i don't know if you guys are familiar with kind of the cochrane center and their yeah, sure yeah their methodology for really vetting the quality of the literature, mm -hmm. the potential for bias in studies. Mm -hmm. there, there have been adaptation of those methods for observational epidemiologic studies and even mm -hmm. for toxicological studies. And those let us more deliberately and rigorously identify all the literature that's out there that could be relevant to the situation and then evaluate on a study by study basis which studies we believe are high quality and informative. And mm -hmm. then we can set aside the ones that we think, you know, this has a flaw and as a result of that flaw, I don't feel good about including that in my evidence database for dose response modeling. And at the end of the day, we think that more rigorous evaluation of the evidence will point us to the best studies that are available for modeling a relationship and then building our risk assessment upon that toxicological metric. And yeah. so, Gasson, in, in some cases, the best study is going to be an epi study, mm -hmm. but in some cases, it could be uh, a study from an animal model. Right. But ideally, both lines of evidence are somewhat consistent and we see similar things in animals, at least in terms of direction and magnitude and shape of dose response relationship than we do in, in humans. Right. And in this and in this particular case, you know, when you're talking about human versus animals, your human studies are almost always going to be observational. Right. Because you're not going to randomize people to toxic chemicals. Right. So the best, you know, even though we may say the high, top of the hierarchy is RCTs, randomized clinical trials, you're not going to really do them in, a, in the case of toxic chemicals. So you have to rely on, you know, something happening somewhere where you have a database of, of workers, for example, that are exposed to such a chemical. And we had a podcast episode on occupational epi um, a few months ago, where we talked about, you know, how to, how to look at that assessment. 
um, in people who are exposed to chemicals in factories, for example. And I assume that some of that evidence would come into play here when, when determining whether someone is just going to step in the mud outside their house and be exposed to something and see how it would affect them, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fortunately, we don't do RCTs with, yeah. with toxic chemicals. Yeah, I, I think there were some instances in the past where that was a little more socially accepted. Uh, yeah, humans have done that in the past, but you know, that's we, not... We've stopped doing that for many right. decades now. Yes, um, yes. But you know, what's interesting about randomized clinical trials is, um, you know, the whole Cochrane system of evidence evaluation was built around clinical trials and evaluation mm -hmm. of the effectiveness of drugs. Mm -hmm. And so taking that framework and applying it to other observational studies doesn't actually work very well. Mm -hmm. um, we cannot generate the same types of studies that allow us to have the confidence that we would in a randomized yeah. clinical trial. So there's been a movement in our field to develop different frameworks for assessing study quality that are designed around, you know, what the best quality observational study looks like instead of what the best conducted randomized clinical clinical yeah. trial would look like and it, yeah. it's an important advance there's a lot of contention around what that looks like because you know these methodologies are, are much more in their infancy compared to what we we've done with clinical trials but right. they're a critical tool um for us in the risk assessment world gotcha yeah so you put a pin in communication so let's come back to it how do you now you know i know you know after this train derailment i heard you on the radio actually talking to journalists about um how you do what you're explaining to us so how do you communicate that nuance to journalists to to the lay public um and explain in a short you know quick soundbite you know the level of of nuance about what we put in quote safety means you know <laughs> Yeah, I um, I don't think it's helpful to talk about safety. Yeah, actually. right, exactly. And, and so what I've I've really tried to do is talk about what we know, what we don't know, and what the uh, best next steps would be mm -hmm. to get us closer to a state of information where people are able to make up their own minds about mm -hmm. how to behave. So one of the kind of earliest tenets of risk communication is it shouldn't be our job to sway people to make a particular decision, but instead empower them with the information they need to make the best possible choices mm -hmm. that reflect their interests and the scenario at hand. Mm -hmm. And I'm a firm believer in doing that mm -hmm. um, because again, I can't make up other people's minds. There are right. days I wish I could, <laughs> but I know that as a, as a researcher and public health scientist, it, it's not my role. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people's lives are more complicated than I could ever perceive. Right, right. I always think about that with evacuation orders. It's like, okay, you know, it's making a big assumption. I can just go somewhere with a, you know, for a week with my family, um, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, you know, to, to talk about this right now for me, especially because uh, I'm sure Keith is aware of this. I live in Philadelphia and uh, mm -hmm. about uh, four days ago, yeah. a chemical plant uh, dumped about by accident about 8,000 pounds of or liters, gallons, I think 8,000 gallons of latex into the Delaware River. Oof. And uh, so ever since Sunday afternoon, I have been receiving repeat notices from the Philadelphia Water Department that is constantly doing testing of the water. And the only word that stands out to me in those texts is safe. <laughs> Literally the only word that I am looking for myself and everybody else I know, everybody who posts on Twitter about the water situation, everybody's looking for is the water safe or not safe. There you go, so Keith. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, absolutely. And I've talked to a couple of reporters about that situation. Um, yeah, so some of these chemicals are some of the same ones that spilled in the uh, East Palestine train derailment, mm -hmm. um, but they're the chemicals that have received a lot less focus because mm -hmm. in one case, we know less about them, but two, we generally believe them to be less toxic. So um, one was butyl acrylate, one was ethyl acrylate, and the third one, I remember the acronym offhand, MMA, um, but it's a, a long, yucky name that isn't mm -hmm. very friendly, so I'll skip mentioning that one. Um, but yeah, I uh, talked to reporters about that. And one of the challenges in talking to these reporters is that as compared to East Palestine, where we had some data about how much of these chemicals were present in the various environmental media, I was not able to find any information about concentrations of these chemicals 
in uh, in the drinking water. And and to my knowledge, nothing had been released by health authorities in Philadelphia. So I was being asked to kind of put in context, what do we know about these chemicals that can help the media translate this information for people who are panicking right now in a lot of cases? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I saw articles about Debrita filters work to get these chemicals out of water. Um, there's no bottled water available on the shelves anywhere in Philadelphia or the neighboring communities. So wow. what should we do? Can we drink the water? Can we shower with the water? Can we brush our teeth? Can I wash Oof. dishes? And I mean, it nothing like a water crisis to just remind you of how essential safe and mm -hmm. healthy drinking water is in so many different aspects of life just beyond having a sip. Yeah. And And so thankfully in this particular case, uh, I was able to locate what we know about those chemicals, and um, many of them at very high levels in air are respiratory irritants, but uh, via drinking water for short periods of time, there isn't much information to suggest that they would have any long-term health consequences. So uh, from what I know about the scenario and, and what I hear about efforts to um, remediate as quickly as possible and prevent further leakage into the into the water system. I think it's going to be okay, but I have to be cautious um, in interpreting to those reporters, you know, yeah. doing the best I can with the limited amount of information that's publicly accessible. Right. And I feel for the health authorities who have to communicate about this because they, they're in a different role. I'm armchair quarterbacking from, from academia, mm -hmm. but I am not providing safe drinking water to people and uh they didn't cause the disaster um but they have to respond to it and they have to translate what it means for people and you know one of the tricky things about risk communication is we kind of know from the field that risk communication fails when the first time a communicator has any contact with the people to whom they're communicating is in a disaster right huh. yeah. ideally um we have some familiarity with our public health officials <laughs> and when we see them communicating to us about risks we have developed some sort of trust that they're competent they know what they're doing they don't have some ulterior motive to downplay or or mm -hmm. make a bigger deal out of a risk than than we actually should and it's difficult in our society with information saturation mm -hmm. for health authorities to have a trusted presence it's sure, especially after the COVID pandemic, when our health authority has really taken a hit in terms of uh, whether it be fair or unfair, um, for whatever reason that the um, you know the trust is low right now, and I can imagine that in a, a, an acute response a scenario like this, when you you have, I mean, really it comes down to trust. How do you how do you get people to trust? And so part of that communication aspect we talked about is also conveying, you know, trust in your expertise, right? Mm -hmm. And that can be tough to do. And yeah, I, I, you know, something I don't feel like I had a lot of training in was risk communication. And I, that's I learned so true. Yeah. Via trial by fire. And I, I so do we all, huh? Yeah. Public health practitioners. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much training they get either. Right. And uh I, I think there is an aversion to sharing uncertainty, um, to speaking very transparently that, you know, we don't know the extent to which I, I'm, this is hypothetical, but we don't know the extent to which the chemicals in your water or in your air, we have people on the ground right now who are trying to figure that out. And when we do, we'll be able to say more about your risks, mm -hmm. but until then, here are things you can do. You know, I, right. I think a risk communication message is the strongest when it's, mm -hmm honest, transparent, and empowering. So mm -hmm. ideally there is something that people can do to mitigate the risk. The drinking water situation that we just talked about is a tough one, right? Tough, because right. It didn't seem like there were alternatives for people. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's, that's when I think, you know, emergency authorities have to kick in and, and mm -hmm. develop some sort of alternative strategy at the population level, which is hard and takes money. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, you know, another plug for let's, adequately resource our emergency response mm -hmm. uh, officials. Um, let's establish really strong communication channels between health, environmental health, and disaster response. Um, because if we don't have an infrastructure that's capable of handling an insult like this type of disaster, uh, things fall apart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, 
I can tell you what a, what a, what an unfortunate risk communication scenario looks like, which is when, and I don't fault the Philadelphia Water Department at all for this. I think they were just working with the information they had, but they basically sent out a text blast uh, to everybody at 1.15 p.m. on Sunday to say beginning at 2 p.m., so 45 minutes from now, you should not drink your tap water. Wow. And so that's around the, that's around the time I drove to a grocery store and saw <laughs> 100 200 cars outside and people with like you know like grocery carts full of, yeah. of bottled water and then i got home wow. and started filling up myself like you know well, what am i gonna do i started mm-hmm. filling up home depot buckets with like five gallon home depot repair buckets with water i go like okay well huh. i can't buy any so i'll just go with the tap water until 2 p.m when <laughs> i should stop drinking it and then uh, that's assuming it was safe between 1 15 and right. 2 p.m <laughs> that's like their, their hydraulic... big assumption right there yeah exactly that's yeah. The, the testing and then right. the next test we got was actually everything is safe until at least midnight wow so we said okay and that's that's the text that's that's the risk communication we've been receiving keep is yeah. is that yeah. every day uh, one or two text messages to say your water is safe until this time your water is safe until this time your water is safe until this time because of course it's all what's coming down through the to the river, to the to the um, so to the reservoir, the plant, and mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Luckily, I'm actually out of the out of the zone just because I'm on the other side of I'm on the I'm on the other river. I'm on the Scooby uh, River, not the Delaware River. But it's fascinating to watch risk communication in action, in real time. Especially, yeah. yeah, especially for a health department, and and you know that that uh, degraded trust you mentioned is just so apparent if you go on social media. Hmm. Wow. And, and there's a lot of blame placed oh, yeah. on the health department. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Scenario. It's, right, right, right. This... Yeah, I, I, no one's, I haven't, I don't think I've seen a single, or maybe I've seen one or two social media messages directed at the actual plant Fair. that dumped yeah, the, the 8,000 gallons right. of latex into the waterway. Like everybody else is just talking about the water department, which is mm-hmm. crazy to me. And I think about the resources to communicate about risk and, deal with the situation and i compare likely underfunded health department right. to the responsible party who probably has deeper pockets and is able yeah. to more but it's totally. we don't have the best public health infrastructure i think we do amazing things with what we've got but you know in my next life that will be a huge point of advocacy for me to really bolster our 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 infrastructure to, to deliver public health services. I mean, mm-hmm. pre-pandemic, we were totally invisible, almost mm-hmm. across the board. Mm-hmm. You only hear about public health if there's a problem, but right. you don't hear about every day the fact that we have generally safe water, safe food, safe air, right. Uh, right. because public health works. That's the public health paradox right there. Yeah. People only know about us when something's going wrong, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. That's true. Super interesting. I, I'm sorry you're dealing with that, Gassan, but what an interesting case example to be living through when we're recording this podcast. Well, technically, um, I'm not dealing with it. Until yeah, they, sure. Until sure. until they send out the email that says my kids' schools are shut down, in which <laughs> well, case I will definitely be dealing with it. Yeah, yeah. Or can they drink water at school? Yeah. Exactly. <sighs> All right. Well, well, we've talked. Yeah, we've talked a lot about you know how do, how do we make these immediate decisions, but you you've alluded to how there's um, you know, there's the immediate safety. Of course, we don't love the term safety, but when it comes down to it, as we've, as we, when it comes down to it, that's what people are interested in. You know, is it safe? So, you know, someone has to make that immediate determination and that judgment. Uh, but I think more what you do, correct me if I'm wrong, is, you know, after the smoke is cleared and, you know, evacuation orders are lifted and people, and, you know, things are remediated as best as they can be. Uh, and people are living in whatever area was exposed to a disaster, uh, you then have to figure out, you know, what are the long-term consequences of this? You know, these, these, you've looked at the dose response, you know, and you think the dose is low, but it's still prevalent in the soil or the water at a small, you know, level. Um, So how do you do that next step of, of saying, you know, we're going to follow people and figure out if there's long-term consequences to this exposure and then i guess my the end of my question is and then what do you do about it if you figure out that there is long-term problems you can't 
institute another evacuation <laughs> two right. years later, right? So, so what do you do with that information that there's an elevated risk for cancer, let's say? Well, I mean, at its core, risk assessment is a decision tool. So risk mm -hmm. assessment is not going to solve the problem, but it's mm -hmm. going to empower someone else to say, okay, I'm not comfortable with this risk. And either I as an individual or as a policymaker, um, am going to intervene to change the scenario. And so the way we do that is first we got to figure out, is there a long-term risk? So one of the things that is really important to take into consideration is even very low level concentrations of certain contaminants over time can elicit health effects. They can, mm -hmm. you know, and depending on who the person is, if we're talking about a pregnant woman that's exposed while a child is in utero, um, you know, there can be consequences. So it's a matter of understanding population behaviors mm -hmm. uh, and trying to relate those to measurements or models of how chemical concentrations will stay stable or change over time. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, we can make a decision that based on our best guess right now, we think the scenario will work out that a person could be at increased risk of a birth defect or cancer or some other adverse health outcome. And we can come up with any number of different types of interventions to, to get in the way of completing kind of the exposure to risk. And, and mm -hmm. so that may mean uh, remediating the site to remove the chemicals or fix the chemicals in place or degrade the chemicals into something else, mm -hmm. or it can mean behavioral modifications. We could decide that a site is no longer suitable for people to work or mm -hmm. live or spend time um, or, you know, any other number of, of options to kind of prevent that exposure from happening and, and that exposure leading to some adverse health outcome. And it's, it's really going to be scenario specific and it's going to depend on what the various types of interventions cost, how socially acceptable they are to people. Um, and, and it's complicated. Again, I, I think I said earlier, being a risk manager is a really tough job. Um, and as a risk assessor, I get to armchair quarterback it and make my recommendations, but they have to, to put those make a judgment call. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in, in the context, especially of long-term things, I think about, uh, I think about the role of risk assessment and litigation. Mm -hmm. So I know that you've, you've kind of had to, you've, you've been involved in that to some extent and uh, plenty of other environmental ep epidemiologists or researchers end up on one side or the other of it. And so so how how challenging is it in that context to to do and how often are you asked like what are you asked to do in that in that scenario? I've done a little bit of litigation and usually my role is either kind of in the hazard identification step where I'm interpreting the body of evidence linking exposure to a chemical and some adverse health outcome or I'm involved in doing some sort of exposure modeling to estimate the risk of a population maybe who lives near a facility that's emitting a chemical. And so different tasks, but very related. Um, often, you know, there is a lot of debate over how a regulatory agency who comes up with a safe level interprets animal studies or epi studies and there may be an argument over whether a particular epi study, for example, is appropriate to use for either determination of hazard or dose response modeling, or whether an animal model where we're able to eliminate any concern of confounding is a better basis for dose response estimation than a human study when in reality the human being is exposed to a mixture of chemicals throughout mm -hmm. his or her life. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, expert witnessing, you know, analysis is a huge part of it, but it boils down to judgment too, because there will inevitably be uncertainties that make it not clear cut, that, that mm -hmm. open or that create an opportunity for debate. And so um, my uh, approach to it is do the best analysis we can, uh, come up with a very clear and well-documented justification for my position and then opine based on that mm -hmm. and really limit and, and be transparent with where the subjectivity is mm -hmm. and where I feel confident that I'm backed up by evidence. I'm assuming in the, in these trials, the lawyers try to make you make a, a yes or no answer, you know, the same way that journalists might, right? They want you to say, is this 
causing this problem or not, right? So I am really choosy about okay. any lawyers that I will work with. And the okay, ones that fair. I agree to work with are super respectful. They mm -hmm. want to know what I'm able to say, what I'm mm -hmm. comfortable saying, and they want to know why I'm going to say it, mm -hmm. but they never want to push me into uncomfortable territory. The okay. greatest discomfort in working on litigation mm -hmm. comes from adhering to legal language when I'm writing my report. So, right. you know, often there will be kind of in statute, in order for a case to move forward, there needs to be an imminent and substantial danger. And I say, well, what does that mean? And they're like, <laughs> right. it means imminent and substantial danger. Do you think there is? And I'm like, well, the risk is X. Yeah, and yeah, these yeah, are the yeah. things I'm not confident in. Right. Right. Do you think that's an imminent and substantial danger? And they're like, well, you need to tell us if you think it is. Yeah, that's super interesting. Huh. It's like taking our scientific, mm -hmm. somewhat objective framework and trying mm -hmm. to like make it into something that's fully subjective, mm -hmm. right? And And this is the same situation where the three of us could all be looking at the same plate of data Mm -hmm. And you might decide that it is, Ghassan might not be sure, and I might decide it's not. And right. who's to say who's correct? And so, you know, again, like I try and load the plate up with the evidence that really makes the point and, yeah. and then build yeah. my interpretation on that and hope that it's convincing. Yeah, that makes sense. That, yeah. See, well, there you go. You busted a little myth I had about how um, litigation might work in this case. So. <laughs> well, I, I want to. I don't want to say that like it never works the way you said. Uh -huh. I can tell you what I do. You, but you I make know sure you that, yeah. that litigation there there are there that are uh, consulting groups that kind of operate for hire, and uh, they right. may be more flexible with those determinations than I'm willing to be. Mm -hmm. I'm taking my whole expertise of this from Aaron Brockovich, just for the record. So you know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to well, that. Well, can I so, tell you, yeah. we're, we're actually using hexavalent chromium as a case example in the class that I'm teaching right now. Ah, yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Cool. Yep. All right. Well, you know, actually, usually we ask this at the beginning, but you know what, Keeve, I want you to give a, a have an opportunity to answer this. What got you interested in the field of risk assessment in the first place? You know, it's such a funny question. I have the the weirdest, <laughs> most atypical trajectory to get where I am. Mm -hmm. um, I started college. I was too young. I didn't really have a good feel for what I wanted to do. Sorry, I'm going super far back. Y'all go um, for it. Start at the I moon. wanted to write fiction and be a physician. And I couldn't okay. decide between those two things. So I went, I started college. I was 17 years old and I thought, well, I'll just do both. <laughs> and uh, that didn't work out so well. Mm -hmm. So I ended up uh, in my kind of final flail to make myself look attractive to medical schools. I looked for a job that would get me some experience that would mm -hmm. help push me in that direction. And I got a gig with a medical physicist at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Mm -hmm. And medical physics is using radiation to treat tumors and, and conditions that are susceptible to irradiation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in studying medical physics, I, uh, I wanted to you know, go to graduate school. Um, and Hopkins had a program within the environmental health sciences department that was radiation health sciences. And it was not quite medical physics, but it was close. I wouldn't have to move. And I, so I, I enrolled in that program. And I took, because I was required to, I took an intro risk class uh, with my mentor, a guy named Something Tom sparked. Tom Burke, yeah. yes. And, and so Tom Burke, just for context, uh, emeritus professor at Hopkins, he established our Risk Sciences and Public Policy Institute, and he was President Obama's appointee to EPA as the science advisor uh, during the majority of his administration. Right. But right. Tom, amazing mentor, a great scientist, but um, I was really taken by his class. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, this is so cool. This is you know, medical physics for me would have meant treating a tumor at a time, and that's mm -hmm. important. I don't want to downplay the importance of of, of, of medicine, but right. I I just was so blown away with public health and mm -hmm. protecting people, and I thought chemical exposures would be a really cool context in which to work. And that's so, cool. as I was wrapping up my master's, I said, "Hey, can I work for you this summer while I figure mm -hmm. out what I can do?" Mm -hmm. I figured that was what I wanted to do. And, and ever since then, I've been totally sold. 
That's so cool. Yeah, I wonder how many of us epidemiologists got into what we do because we're failed physicians. So that's very similar to my story. I was like, I just need some experience here. I'm gonna, st- I'm gonna work with this guy who does Alzheimer's research. All of a sudden, I'm like, why do people get Alzheimer's? I'm wrapped up, and that, you know, that that's where my career went. But yeah, I funny. think it happens a lot. Uh, it's probably I, a I common thing. Great joy in finding the pre-meds and being like, hey, let me <laughs> poach them, poach them. That's right. That's right. Get them early. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the podcast serial, Keeve, but on oh, one man. of the more in the more recent season, the host is a physician who decided to stop being a physician and go back to school for journalism. Wow. Which was a shocking, a shocking <laughs> one, a shocking one for me. I was like, you. I'm sorry. I was like, I'm confused. You went. You went from that. You went from that comfortable ish career to to podcasting. <laughs> Wait, so is this season four? I, I don't know what number season it is. It's, I haven't um, heard that one, and I thought I've listened to them all. But... It's, huh. it's an episode of, it's a, it's, it's a season about um, uh, something in Great Britain, I believe. Huh. Uh, a story in Great Britain. Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I listened to one episode. It was pretty good. Okay. Well, so in also, other words. Uh, <laughs> Michael Crichton. Yeah. Yes. Position, right. Dude, that's that's Ken, how I got started. Michael Crichton, that's my man. Ken Jeong, who's a comedian, who's really yep. fun. He's also yep. a physician. Mm-hmm. So there are lots of physicians who said, you know what? Other callings. That's so right. I'm, I'm on totally. There. There we go. We're all we're all there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so final question of the day, Keith. What's the next album you're going to buy on vinyl? <laughs> oh, so difficult to answer that. Question. <laughs> I've been looking at old black metal albums on Discogs, and I've yeah. decided that mm. I don't have a couple, couple uh, G's or, or Benjamins to spend on my next purchase. So I'm just going to have to keep looking for something a little less expensive. Well, just wait for the remaster. That's true. <laughs> the remaster been, will what, always come. I've been wanting to say on on record that I love that you know you you like metal. You know you're kind of a metal guy and and what you do is kind of metal right i mean <laughs> toxic <laughs> chemicals there's a lot of good band names in what you do i'm sure oh it's definitely yeah, yeah absolutely cool well awesome this was a great way to wrap it up um i do want to i do want to give you the opportunity though before we go to say um you know what do you think is the future of the field of risk assessment you know is there anything uh where's it going you know are there new exciting tools or methods available that you know signify the future here there are so many places we need to go in the risk world and there's some exciting new new tools that are starting to come out now mm-hmm. um, a big concern in our field is that we're exposed to lots of chemicals all the time and we have limited capacity to do animal studies um, to do epidemiologic studies to really thoroughly characterize each and every chemical mm-hmm. and yet we can't ignore the fact that they all probably work together to uh, affect our health. So a couple different directions I want to take this in. The first is that um, we've been talking for decades about the need to do cumulative risk assessment, to recognize like many different chemicals all at the same time, all at varying levels. How do we make sense of that? How do we consider that the chemicals may work together to affect Mm -hmm. health, or they may work with other factors in our lives that make us more vulnerable to getting sick when we are exposed? Things like uh, social stressors, uh, access to transportation, access to safe and healthy food, nutritional status, comorbidities, all of these things biologically can directly render us more or less vulnerable to those chemical exposures. So mm-hmm. how can we consider those factors when we're doing a risk assessment? Mm-hmm. Um, there are methods emerging as we speak. The EPA has just uh, shared some draft versions of new approaches uh, mm-hmm. they're considering for doing that. Uh, I think we've got a lot of uh, we've got a long way to go, but it's great that there is an appetite and an interest to try and start doing new things quantitatively. Yeah, a systems approach rather than some of those, one yeah. one exposure at a time. Cool. Because we're we're never exposed to one chemical at a time. That's right. Even though yeah. that's the way we've always done things. Yes. We've mm-hmm. Always done things. Mm-hmm. So so that's a major advance. Another is going back to the issue of there are so many chemicals and we don't have data for many of them. So. There's an emerging field. I feel like it's not even really emerging anymore. It's it's established called computational toxicology, mm-hmm. where we are taking advantage of big data, uh, and we are 
trying to make estimations of hazard for chemicals that we have never seen before by relating them structurally um, and using physiochemical properties to other chemicals that we have studied. And it's not perfect, it's not fully certain, but um, it's an amazing advance compared to how we've been able to do things in the past. Yeah, that's super interesting. Us to, to prioritize chemicals, to study more, mm -hmm. more uh, at least to make first pass judgments um, mm -hmm. in a disaster scenario. So I, I think there's so much potential in these computational approaches. Um, I have uh, some funding from the EPA to work on uh, young children's exposures to soil and dust, mm -hmm. and also to look at processed huge, uh, processed human sewage sludge, which we call biosolids, um, in order to figure out what the chemicals are that are present in biosolids that we aren't currently regulating. We're trying to take those chemicals and rank them based on, all right, based on the signals that we have about exposure and toxicity, which of the chemicals do we think are the most important ones to develop regulations for? Cool. Um, and so computational tox is an amazing tool in, in, in both of those projects. And I think it's gonna move us so far beyond what we'd be able to do with the small number of chemicals that we have established toxicity information for to say, okay, now we know much more about so many more chemicals. Let's rethink our approach to prioritizing them. Got it. Cool. Very great way to wrap this up. Biosolids would be a cool band name. I have to say, pretty metal. Um, cool. Well, I think it's been a great conversation. I think it's time to wrap it up. One thing I want to say before we we close is I noticed you pronounced the town East Palestine, and I said East Palestine in the intro. I apologize to residents of the town for uh, mispronouncing your name, um, East Palestine. You've already suffered enough. You don't have to have me mispronounce your town name. Um, before you we go, pronounced my name too. It's okay. I did. Keith. No, you got Keith. Oh, Nachman. <laughs> it's, so it's actually Nachman. Knackman. People get it wrong. I just thought I'd throw it out there while we're. Thank correct. you for correcting the record. I apologize, Doctor Knackman. Well, it's okay. Totally all right. That. <laughs> all right. Cool. All right. So, anyways, before you go, I do want to close by saying, if you're an epidemiologist, we strongly recommend once again that you consider becoming a member of SCR, the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which will be held in June in Portland, Oregon. And this year, we are actually recording a live podcast where attendees can address myths about epidemiology that they want to bust. So if you're attending and you're interested, please submit an entry for something to discuss with us on the podcast, a, a myth you want to bust. Um, you can find that at the SER website, epiresearch.org, under the podcast section. And also, SER membership gets you access to the SER library, which has great learning materials, seminars, and activities. And finally, a quick statement that the views expressed in this podcast by both the host and any of our guests are ours and their views alone and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. We really appreciate you listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks. <laughs>